0: Friday, June 28th at Hungry Brain in Chicago. It's our pride show and podcast recording, music, drag, interview, comedy, panel and Q&A sponsored by Rowan Tree Counseling. Get your tickets at wildandsublime.com or go to links in the show notes.
1: It worked, it cracked me open and I got the intimacy and the relationships that I wanted. And what I had to give up was secrecy and a kind of privacy that I had had before that I guarded pretty closely and then I actually got better when I let go of it.
0: Welcome to Wild and Sublime, a sexy spin on infotainment, no matter your preferences, orientation, or relationship style. Based on the popular live Chicago show, each week I'll chat about sex and relationships with citizens from the world of sex positivity, with spicy additions from storytellers and musicians. I'm Karen Yates. Today I chat with author Christy Tate about her new memoir, Group, and about sexual transparency, intimacy, and addiction. Keep listening. If you're a Wild and Sublime fan and want to help us continue to produce this podcast weekly, consider joining The Afterglow, our Wild and Sublime community on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you get some cool benefits. A bonus Q&A session with sex experts every month where you get to ask the questions, my weekly audio creator notes, and more. Plus, the giddy sensation that you are helping build a more sex-positive world. If a monthly membership is not your thing, consider throwing some bucks in the tip jar in appreciation for our work, or simply share this episode with your friends. More info is in the show notes. Hey folks, we're continuing with Book Month at Wild and Sublime with a rebroadcast of an interview I did with author Christy Tate last year as she talks about her memoir Group, which has recently come out in paperback. In addition to debuting on the New York Times bestseller list at number four, Group was a Times editor's pick. The memoir went on to be a selection for Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine Book Club and has been optioned by Witherspoon's film company. As well, Group was one of Amazon's top selling titles in 2020. Reviewers have called Group funny, emotional, and insightful, fearless, and hilarious, and engrossing. In Group, published by Simon & Schuster, Tate recounts enlisting the aid of a highly unconventional psychiatrist and joining his group therapy practice in order to learn how to sustain a lasting, intimate relationship. In addition to being a writer, Christy Tate was a lawyer for many years. She has been published in the New York Times' Modern Love column, The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and McSweeney's, among others. She's also a good friend of mine. Christy will begin the interview by reading an excerpt from Group. The selection features a moment late at night where Tate, a Catholic fourth grader living in Texas, listens to the radio in bed.
1: The night of my first Big O, the spring weather in Texas was pleasant enough that I had my bedroom window open at 6644 Thackeray Avenue. I couldn't sleep, so I flipped on the radio and heard, sexually speaking, you're on the air. Ooh, this radio program was not for kids. I burrowed deeper under the covers. Sister Mary Margaret told us that sex was only for married couples trying to have a baby. Having sex under any other circumstances would lead to hell, far away from God, our parents, and our pets. My mom affirmed that Catholic truth over dinner one night when she explained that there were two sins that could get you a one-way ticket to eternal damnation, murder and premarital sex. It was not hard to imagine myself slipping from God's favor as I scooched up the volume on the radio. A caller confessed that she was unable to reach orgasms with her partner. What followed were Dr. Ruth Westheimer's instructions on how to get to know your body through masturbation. Helpfully, Dr. Ruth explained where the clitoris was and what it did. It was almost like she knew she was talking to a fourth grader. I couldn't let all that sage advice go to waste. I slid my hand between my legs and touched the delicate pearl that sometimes hurt when I rode my bike for too long. Slowly, I circled with my finger until I felt something happening a warm wave building, making my legs go stiff. My fantasy reel, Tad Martin from All My Children, kissed my face and told me he loved me more than all the women in Pine Valley. I rubbed myself harder. The extra pressure didn't hurt. My body climbed toward its first glorious sexual release. Then, my whole body shuddered with pleasure, just as Dr. Ruth promised. For the first time in my life, I thought, my body is exquisite and powerful.
0: Welcome, Christy Tate.
1: Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, I was wondering, as you were reading, I had a couple of thoughts come across my mind. The first was, how long um, after fourth grade did you continue to listen to Dr. Ruth on the radio? you know I
1: really I was not a very resourceful kid so (laughs) I if she if I stumbled upon her I would listen but then I think maybe they moved her time to a little bit later so like I finished out the year and like I remember a few months right and then like maybe they moved her time and I didn't have the wherewithal to figure out when she was on so it was kind of a brief period that coincided with like my first sexual exploration of myself
0: yeah you know the other thought that kind of drifted across my mind as you were reading was you know how <clears throat> here dr ruth you know you got this knowledge from dr ruth and i learned about masturbation from well first like the judy bloom books like um uh oh not are you there god but was the other one a Dini, you yeah. know, it was about like masturbation. And I remember just reading and like not kind of understanding.
1: Like, I remember thinking at the time, I remember thinking, well, this is super naughty. I've never heard of this. I don't know what this is. It was a part of my body that was undercover and unspeakable. And then when we, a few years later, when I started to have like health class and the type of um sexual reproduction talks that they gave at my Catholic school, they they exclusively spoke of masturbation as something that boys did. And so I thought, Ooh, it's not even, it's not even really for, for girls. That's how I remember it. And now when I think about it, I'm like, I got my instruction from an immigrant mm-hmm. with a heavy accent who was a woman and who also, um, wasn't from my religion. And Mm. I don't think any of that's an accident. I just find it Mm. very interesting that I had my sexuality for myself was othered. And I was introduced to it from a figure in culture who was also othered. Although definitely a woman, obviously, I just think I had to look outside my cultural bubble to know my own body.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, the Jewish spirit really informs your writing because you had a Jewish uh therapist and then you subsequently married a Jewish man and there were other Jewish men that figure prominently in the book and how um this sense of you know wisdom for, from another culture definitely comes through in the writing.
1: Yeah, I feel really, really grateful for the people who touched my life. If I would have stayed in my bubble, <laughs> it's like it's
0: a terrible thought. I would be
1: a fraction of who i am today.
0: Right. Yes, and i did appreciate the um you know you talking about because you did also mention it in the book in during this section of wow no one has ever mentioned this before. I've i've stumbled onto something. Me having an orgasm is something i have just literally stumbled upon. And Yeah. I'm just, I'm just thinking about how we have these pieces of ourselves that we're, you know, especially around sexuality that, you know, as we become more expansive in our sexual expression, we're we're basically bringing these pieces or these parts back to ourselves and back into wholeness.
1: Yes. I do think that anything, well, you know, it's, it's not an accident. I was in a very, very Catholic home. There's a lot of repression there. And so anything that's not speakable, For me, in my history, things that we can't talk about become infused with shame and they start to be cut off from the sunlight or from spirit or from wholeness, like you said. And shrouding something in silence is the first way that I know to take all the pleasure out and to siphon any sense of of goodness of something. If you can't talk about it, it must be terrible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about this idea of shame because, of course, it figures prominently in your book around secrecy, which we'll talk about in a moment. And this this sense of repress repressing or um, kind of blocking off, which is a se- a type of secrecy, does it does take away the life force? I mean, because basically, it's almost like a plant that you're putting in darkness, mm-hmm. you know, barely giving any water, but it's it's still alive, but it it, it doesn't it doesn't have the the nourishment from the sun. Yeah. And um how how destructive it is but also it's it's it can be so invisible. So obviously your book one of the main things about your book and it's uh it's the the thing that gets written about the most is the fact that you elected to see a therapist in group therapy who one of the first things he tells you is there are no secrets. And not only is this no one in group will have secrets from each other but also that that the the group itself is not confidential and that he and you as individual therapist client will not have confidentiality and that it's all open and that he runs other groups and that people can talk freely among groups with each other and um and i know this is a pretty radical shocking idea especially since he is a psychiatrist um, and so a, a medical doctor and uh, this idea of patient, uh, patient, uh, doctor confidentiality. And yet um, this was the thing that ultimately saved you.
1: Yeah, I definitely people are even before long before I started writing any of this down, when I would tell people about an experience in group. And for years, I was very tight-lipped about it, like, ooh, I have mental health treatment. And then I was like, wait a minute, having a therapist is super awesome, and that's like going to the dentist. And so I kind of came out of the closet. But then when I started sharing some of the details about, A, the ways in which we're encouraged in group to sort of crack our lives open and to share, and that there was not a prohibition about like in many, in traditional group therapy, as I understand it, I'm not in traditional group therapy. My understanding is one thing that often happens is at the beginning, but when you join the group, you sign a, a confidentiality, like pledge, or it's like a contract where you say two, you make two promises. First is I won't talk about anything that happens here outside of the group. And the second one is I won't have any contact with group members outside of group. And I completely understand those norms. Um, that's not what I stumbled into. Um, in the world that I joined, that I write about in my book, there was a sense of fluidity and free that everybody needed to be free to say what had happened to them, to their bodies, things that they'd heard, rumors about other group members, things. Um, And that holding those secrets had become a toxic process and had contributed to what I understand as my own addiction, which is, I consider the ways in which I was socially isolated and sexually anorexic. I consider that a version of addiction that holding all those secrets was making me really sick. And so I stumbled into the right place for me and I was able to work with the parameters. It's not for everybody. But it was for me and it seemed it worked. It cracked me open and I got the intimacy and the relationships that I wanted. And what I had to give up was secrecy and a kind of privacy that I had had before that I guarded pretty closely. And then I actually got better when I let go of it.
0: Yeah, because, you know, we've known each other for many years and and I also know people from... fairly well people from dr rosen's group and i remember when i was first presented with this idea that he was doing this i thought it was fucking loco (laughs) and um and and i i didn't know how i squared with it right because i knew that i was (laughs) talking with people who didn't have the same attachment to secrecy privacy confidentiality and those those All of those words, secrecy, privacy, confidentiality, have different um, shadings of meaning, and I'm aware of that. Um, And yet, at the time, I remember that I was undergoing a radical revision of my sense of what secrecy is, and it was it healthy for me, and a, a true belief that has only grown through the years that there are no secrets. At the end of the day, there are no secrets. I mean, I don't know... I think it was some German philosopher said, you know, if, you've, if you tell something to one person, you have to act as though you've told it to the world because yeah. humans are fallible. There's, there's sort of two themes in the book. One is transparency, but the other is intimacy. And they're two very different things. Yeah. And so I guess the first thing I want to talk about is sexual transparency because it's the it's maybe the easier thing to talk about because in a way sexual transparency is really more almost more fact-based where intimacy that's a whole other uh ball of wax so my my first question to you is the one thing i well i I loved your book and um and i just full disclosure i i read it in a blind flash in the past couple of days uh, (laughs) because i forgot that we were
1: (laughs) doing the interview today (laughs) That is amazing.
0: <laughs> I thought it was like in five days and I suddenly looked at my calendar and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> but um, one of the things of many things that I loved about it was that it is very visceral and connected mm-hmm. to the body. Yeah. And so as I moved through the book, I was moving through with a sense of your body sense, but I was having a body sense as well. Yeah. I talk about a lot on the show that we are so disconnected from our bodies in general life. We're we're in our head all the time. And certainly writing tends to be more of a head thinking, Yes. Art. So I, I would love for you to talk just a little bit about moving down that road.
1: Yeah, that's actually, I would say to me the greatest affirmation that anyone could ever give me about any piece of my writing would be that it felt that they could feel my body or see my body, or they had their own body experiences. So thank you. And, you know, I had a draft, early drafts of this book were um, a lot of jokes, a lot of glib um, moments that were glossed over. It It was a lot shorter. And I hooked up with Lydia Yuknovich, who had written a memoir. It was totally stunning. It's the most embodied book I'd ever read. And I started to take classes with her and I took some pages to my first in-person workshop with her. And um, she does a, a radical um, way of workshopping that is extremely, extremely generative and affirmative. So it wasn't a teardown fest at all, but you know, she told, there were like 50, no, there was 10 of us. So she told the other nine writers okay, you guys have all read Christy's work, circle every place where she talks about her body. And there was not one thing about my body. There, She was like, where is your body? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, I'm writing what I saw. So- all along I've joked that this is a sexual buildings Roman. And there was not in 15 pages, no body. And, um, and I had gotten feedback like from agents that it my my books my story seemed very superficial, and I had this sense that if I put my body in the book, and um what Lydia always says is that your body has a point of view, and I didn't know what that meant. Mm. I'm not sure I do now, as I sit mm. here and talk to you, post book, mm. but I do know that the first step has to be what was my body doing and feeling in my first session? The first time I called someone when I was binging on apples, like if that's not, if if that's not a story about my body, I can't possibly tell you what it feels like to have sex. Like mm-hmm. I can't tell you what it feels like to sit in a chair in front of strangers talking about my sex life. I can't possibly tell you a true story about sex. Like, so it really was, the, the story became a true live story when I put my body in it.
0: Yeah. This is a really interesting idea of the body's point of view. I mean, I'm sort of thinking about sex and the sexual journey through life and how the body c- can change, has the potential to change throughout that the sexual journey. And, um, I mean, it's really interesting. You, you, there was one, um, boyfriend you had in the book who had sex in a very rigid, um, <laughs> you know, highly re- repetitive manner of, of having sex. And, and I thought, wow, that is, that is very, that's a, it, it was a very kind of, to me, a disconnected way of having sex. Um, and, and what is, I mean if you had to you just said you weren't sure even now what that means to you. I mean if you could hazard a guess what would that mean your body having a point of view?
1: I think yeah, if I had to say what it means my body has a point of view it's like what would it be like in those in in any story I tell I I sort of run through the checklist like what did my breasts think like <laughs> what what was it like for my breasts to have sex with a man who couldn't look at my face when we were being intimate together? Um and what what got neglected, what got pressed upon. And when I start, I think it means like tell the story of your body. And there may be, I may understand this differently. I mean I hope I do will understand this differently in a year, in five years, but what it means today is Where is, where are the sensations in my body and what are the best words I can put to tell what that story is?
0: We'll return to my interview with Christy Tate in a moment. Did you know that each episode has a transcript you can download? Go to the individual episodes webpage and the link is below the audio player. The work I do in biofield tuning, an energy modality that uses sound waves to help repattern your bioelectric field, can support you in getting out of stuck behaviors and leading a more content life. If you are interested in working with me or learning more about my weekly group biofield tuning sessions on Zoom on a variety of topics, including increasing intuition, finding your way post-pandemic, balancing your energy centers, and more, go to karen-yates.com. That link is in the show notes. We now return to the interview with Christy Tate. In this second half, we discuss sexual transparency, shame, and addiction. One of the arcs of the story is, you know, you are looking to have a a, a um, connected, intimate relationship with someone. You know, th- your yeah. desire to be partnered in a long-term relationship, your desire to be married and um, and you, you have not been able to achieve that. And this is one of the reasons you're driven to therapy. So it's a very frank sexual memoir as well, as you start dating and, and seeing various men. And then of course, reporting back your sexual, uh, what happened sexually in group, because there are no secrets, right? So you are always talking about sex in your group. And as I was reading this, I'm like, yeah, you had to go through the process as a writer of saying, okay, now I am telling this to the, the, the um, audience. Now I'm right, the, the uh, reader. The reader is now going on this sexual journey with me. There's, there's so many layers to transparency and intimacy. But first, I would just love for you to talk a little bit about sexual transparency and your journey with that.
1: Yeah, that's a great, I mean, I obviously started <laughs> before group there was so little sex that there was, there was nothing to be transparent about. And of course I had shame about how paltry and unpopulated my sex life was. And um, it's even hard to remember back. So I started group in 2001. So prior to that, it's like things I would have sexual relations or I'd have boyfriends and I didn't really tell anyone what was going on. Like everything was such a broad brush stroke because I didn't know what normal was, but I was sure I wasn't doing whatever was normal. And so when I got to group, I remember one time, um, I was describing this might've been, this must've been early on. Cause it sticks out in my head. It was like, Oh yeah. Um, I once had sex with that guy and everyone was just staring at me like, and, and I'm like, well, what, and that's the story. And they were like, well, what kind of sex? And what was it like and what was your experience and um they were right to press on me because it was something i had a lot of shame about and they picked up on it instantly mm-hmm. and i write about it very briefly in the book but it was like it was an experience where i'd had anal sex with my partner and i didn't know if that was okay i didn't know if it was normal i certainly didn't think i was allowed to talk about it i didn't think that's the bottom line like all my programming in my family and then my religion We're like don't do it if you do do it do not talk about it because that will make it real and so now when i think about you know pretty much whatever happens especially if i feel like that tremor of shame through something like i know well, i got to tell somebody because this will grow and it will fester and it will impede my my wholeness my pleasure my communication with my partner and i don't want that and um but when I think about like now this book's gonna go out to the world, I will tell you that I sometimes have like a little bit of like, oh, uh, like I'm gonna walk down the street theoretically, you know, and there's a there's a family, like we know them from school. So my kids are school age, people are like, Oh, we're gonna buy your book. And I'm like, Do you know that I talk about anal sex in the book? Like now the dude at drop off is gonna know something about me that I don't know about him. And I have given some thought to that and part of me thinks that the story that is a that particular story that's in the book a it happened like 20 years ago so that that's sort of I have this sort of cloak of it's not immediate it's not like I did it yesterday and even if I had I'm sexually liberated now Um, but I think that that's that's something I'm still currently right this minute grappling with the fact that the intimacy and the transparency is very lopsided You know, Gary from accounting at my office is, if he gets this book and he reads this, he's going to know a ton about my sexual awakening. And I don't even know his last name.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the way, you didn't really, you didn't really describe a whole lot of anal in the book.
1: (laughs) 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 See, to me, it
0: feels like I was like standing You see, like you told me like a month ago or a couple of months ago, like, oh yeah, anal, anal. And I was like, whoa, God, she's kind of, you're like, oh yeah. And when I told my parents there was like anal in the book, I was like, holy crap, there's gonna be a lot of anal. I had no clue Christy was that into anal. And then like, I was reading the book, waiting for the anal. (laughs) Oh my God, a false promise. It was, it was totally a false promise. It was like a paragraph.
1: That was like at a distance. I'm not even sure it
0: was that. It was like, yeah, I had anal with this guy. That was it. I was a little. Yes,
1: Yes, (laughs) I have. It's very. That's so. I'm so happy you're busting me on that. It was like so. You.
0: I mean, I did appreciate that everyone in your group therapy did have to relate an ass story. As yes, same. that was good, but it was like diarrhea. This, that pinworm, you know, your pinworm story. So it was like it was it was ass friendly. <laughs> was definitely, really definitely
1: waiting for the big an anal sexual. reveal. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't sexually explicit.
0: <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so talking about anal, what I was just thinking in your in your talking about shame and kind of excavating that, I was thinking about that scene. Um, from high school with the boys at the party touching your breasts yeah that was such a fucking painful scene to read like i i i was so there there was a lot in the book i like teared up a lot in the book And I was always a little bit surprised as I was making my way through the book where I was getting teary. And I was, I kept trying to figure out, I'm like, is this, am I getting teary because I know Christy and she's a good friend? Or am I getting teary at the journey of the addict, as I am an addict as well? And like that journey, which we can talk about in a moment. But that moment was so laden. It reminded me so much of these shameful, you know, these. Things that get filled with shame for us, and they're they're not even they're they're not even like uh, I don't want to say they're not even like the worst possible thing that can happen to a human, but they're they're so awful.
1: Yes, I. That's actually that's such a great point. So two things about that. One is that was a very late added scene, and back to your earlier question. This might be an answer to your earliest question. Earlier question about. The body has a point of view. Like I had breast hatred long before those boys came, approached me when I was drunk on wine coolers and I had breast. I, I still have it today to be perfectly honest. And so um, when I was telling the story, like I know I had gone in there and I was mad about the bras and in the book, I talk about how I got a prescription from Dr. Rosen to go. And wait, and
0: l- let me just, let me just cut in here and say, you know, for the, for the listener, um, part of the book is that Christy wore more than one bra uh, because, (laughs) because she had large breasts. And so, (laughs) and so that was part of the, the unraveling, if you will. I mean, I guess that's a weird pun, but like a, uh, uh, (laughs) a, a, you know, the, this idea of like, just becoming uh, okay with, with your boobs, but go on.
1: Yeah. So, and so I had gone to group and I was wearing a tank top and you could tell I was wearing like multiple bras and it's kind of like, what's up with that? And it—it it sort of, I had to, it's like they pulled on that thread and it was like, oh, well, yeah, I hate my boobs. I'm trying to flatten them down. And, you know, I would, I would toss off comments about hating my breasts, like most, like all the time. And people are like, oh my God, people spend so much money trying to get breasts like that. But and I couldn't, I had a hard time articulating what exactly it was. And some of it just comes back to plain old like anorexia. Like I always thought I should be really, really skinny, prepubescent. And boobs are not compatible with what I thought I, the body I was supposed to live in. And so I had written those scenes and they were, I think it was fine. But then I realized I had written about Showing up a group with the extra bras and kind of being, quote, busted, another pun mm, about what's going one. on, how do you feel about your breasts, and blah, blah. And then I remembered that sequence of those boys, and I thought it was important for so many reasons. And one of them was that's a story that lives on my breasts and in my body around my breasts. And it's like the body memory um, that seems really important. And I also wanted to show that I participated in that degradation of myself. It was not, it was not, I was not held down. I, I, my memory of myself is I was drunk and I wanted the attention and I like wanted them to keep coming. But I mean, I was ambivalent, but I, I, that's not to absolve them, but this wasn't a case where I was forcibly held down. They did not have positions of authority. I was desperate for attention and had no idea how to go about getting what I thought that I wanted. And I was real messed up with alcohol and food. And so that was a result of that. But adding that story tell, like reminds me or makes me think about what did that mean? My relationship to my breasts and telling that story is like, my breasts have a point of view and how I've used them as weapons against myself and really abused them a lot. I owe, I owe my breasts a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm still making amends to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, something in what you said kind of made me think about, you know, as I, as I, you know, got older and, you know, started move, moving out of, you know, Prime childbearing years, and or and then childbearing years in general, um, I felt like I was being kicked out of a giant machine mm-hmm. of um, w- of objectification. Yeah, and um, that this machine, you know, basically starts when you, as a woman, mature uh, sexually, and then um, you know basically rejects you when you are of no uh, use to it any longer. Yeah, and Yet, um, instead of being angry about it, um, I was so profoundly glad that I had suddenly this perspective that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And so I was no longer, um, I had all this ex- extra energy, if you will, Yeah. instead of being this outward facing, you know, uh, desire for attention or desire for validation, I was able to take that and, and give it back to myself but yeah. to to your point you know in terms of the machine the machinery of objectification like yeah. when you're in it it's invisible again talking about these ideas of things that are invisible that we don't we're not even aware they're there yeah cultural assumptions right
1: it's totally terrifying i certainly hope that when i think about what are the things that i could do to help my daughter have a better relationship to her body. And that if she wants, you know, sexual play with her breasts, I support that. I just would like that to be coming from a place of connection and not of degradation, of course. And I think, well, the one thing I think I can do today, its she's a lot younger than I was in that story in my book is like, we're let's have conversations about pleasure and about bodies and about these the potential for these body parts to bring us great pleasure and that I want her to have agency I want her to be in charge of that and uh, and have yeah I, the word that comes to mind is just agency but if we can't talk about it if she can't talk about it I can't imagine how much agency you can have about a process a body part that's unspeakable
0: right the other thing i wanted to talk with you about is this idea of intimacy getting back to this Um, the original, uh, query about, you know, transparency versus intimacy and, you know, as a fellow addict, um, in recovery, uh, I was so, you know, the, the phrase that kept coming up over and over again for me in reading your book is go to any length, (laughs) going to any length to, um, get wholeness, get right with oneself. Yeah. um, become at ease, become serene. And that is in your, in your journey, I I could recognize myself as well, that it was, it was, and it still is probably the most important thing in my life that I am, um, that I am willing to go to any length to have peace of mind.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. And I hope that comes through in the book. And what I feel hungry for and why, you know, I get, I get a lot of questions like, why did you write this book? Who is this book for? And um, I have some feelings about both those questions, but the true answer is I was so desperate for a book or a story or someone to tell me how messy and how long it takes to learn intimacy. Oh my God. It looked to me from where I sat at age twenty seven alone in caribou coffee, outlining my law books, it looked to me like everyone else had just figured it out and they knew how to have brunch and sleep over and whatever put in their diaphragm like I had no idea
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it was so painful and one one thing that helped was like this this doesn't help everybody, but for me, like to learn. What was going on with me has a name. It's called sexual anorexia. And it is a starvation, like the kind of starvation an anorexic does around food. And so then I didn't feel as alone, but you can't recover in 30 days. I I couldn't. Other people may be able to, but like for me, it was really messy. If you would have told me when I started, the events in the group were August, they began in like the summer of 2001. You would have told me it took about seven years to get what I saw other people had before I ever stepped in therapy. I'm not sure I would have done it. Like I like to think I would. I'm glad I kept thinking two years. Okay. Okay. Three years. Then it was like, okay, four years. (laughs) I just was like, it just takes a long time. And that's what I hope readers of any age of any gender of any longing in their heart maybe they're longing to get out of a relationship and I was longing to get into one, but I just, I want, I want there to be more stories about the mess and what happens along the way instead of just something tidy. I don't think there's anything tidy about my story.
0: Boy, I really am so excited. You said that because, um, it, you know, I, I mean, I've been, yeah, you know, I've been in recovery for years. I, I think I entered, in my life, about the same time you entered in in, in your twenties, and um, and that is the truth of it. That it is it is um, it is long, but it's not it's not despair filled. You mm-hmm. know, I think it's easy for people to look at um maybe the recovery process as oh my god, I'm sorry, I don't have the time for that, but the rewards happen almost immediately. Yeah, um, and they keep happening. Like day in day out, I mean there are there are trenches of feeling, but and i 'm not just talking this is i 'm not really even saying this for addicts i 'm saying this for anyone who wants to um, affect change in their life that there is um, there's so much joy that can happen the more clear headed you get day in day out, and that there is A level of intense work but it's not intense work every single day (laughs) right (laughs) it's like life is hard it's some you know there there are weeks there are months there are years that are hard but then there are like weeks and months and years that aren't as hard you know what i mean they just are it's just about it's basically saying i'm gonna show up and i'm not going to medicate yeah my my the way I interface with the world there's not going to be a buffer between me and the rest of the world and you can use sex or food or drugs or alcohol or video games or pornography you can use whatever you use but like suddenly making that decision of one day saying you know I'm not I don't want to do this anymore because I'm not I'm not being my true self right
1: right and to your point like I remember the last breakup, I mean, I had a lot of breakups and disappointments and ghosting and whatever through my history when, you know, as recounted in the book. But I remember that last time I was like in bed the morning before group, group starts at 7.30. I'm like, wallowing. I'm like, maybe after group, I'll kill myself. I just was really bereft about the latest breakup. And it was extra difficult because I was like, Each breakup was like, that's it. That's proof. I'm alone forever. I suck. And so I was doing the whole routine and I got to group and I was just sad and crying and yelling, this doesn't work. And I remember at one point, maybe it was 45 minutes into the session and somebody else, you know, I'm not the only one in there with a problem or a a thing to discuss. And somebody else had taken the floor and they were talking about something and, um, We were laughing so hard. I don't remember what it was, but I remember looking at the clock, like, am I seriously laughing my ass off at 815? When at 615, I was like, "Ah, maybe after group I'll jump on the L track. Like the company and the people either in recovery meetings or in my group, they brought so many so many riches every single time. So even when I think of the dark periods, I can still remember you know the guys in my group taking me out for eggs and trying to make me laugh and there that's the thing i think that's why for me having the group and the company made helped me hang on through through the desperation cuz on my own i can't i can't seem to pull out of it on my own it takes a long time
0: yes yes uh, and, and that's that's one of the the biggest messages i got from the book that this was about uh, this was a community event and that you know especially in this time of covid as we are so isolated from each other yeah we need community to pull us pull us out of ourselves into the fold yeah you know this idea of intimacy i just love it because what i you know the conclusion i i drew from your book because you talk a lot about emotional intimacy it's really about this this idea that what we're trying to cover up is that terrible fear that we don't have the right to exist. Mm -hmm. The terrible fear that we don't have the right to feelings and opinions. And it takes a community to bear witness to us. Right. And, and to say, yes, you exist. You have a right to exist. And basically as they say, to love you until you love yourself.
1: Yeah. I think that's so true. And the, I agree completely. And one of the things I I see happening for me and a nice thing about being in a group is you can watch it happen for someone else. You can watch them do their hard work and be like, Oh, I did that too. Like Mm -hmm. I, I get to reap the benefits of someone else's transformation. I get to participate in it. And even just this morning, we had a session and somebody, uh, one of the group members had called me yesterday with an issue and we had a lovely conversation. And, um, she was struggling with something. Okay. So then today in group, she's like, Oh my God, I, I was such a seeping wound. That wasn't my experience of it at all. But the story in her head is she always has to be the one giving help. She has to be strong. She has to help me with whatever. And she had been vulnerable to me by asking for my help. And you would have, the way she talked about it, I like changed a gangrenous wound. And to me, we had a lively, connecting conversation um, where we were both vulnerable. And that feels that the stories in our head are so loud and so wrong. They're often Mm. so flat out wrong.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Christy.
1: Thanks, Karen.
0: The link to more information on Christy Tate is in the show notes, as well as the ability to buy group through Bookshop the organization that helps independent booksellers and Wild and Sublime through your purchase. Wild and Sublime is also sponsored in part by our Sublime supporter, Chicago-based Full Color Life Therapy. Therapy for all of you at fullcolorlifetherapy.com. If you would like to be a Sublime supporter showcasing you and your business and supporting us at the same time, contact us at info at wildandsublime.com. I'd like to thank Wild and Sublime associate producer Julia Williams and design guru Jean-Francois Gervais. Theme music by David Ben-Porat. Our media sponsor is Rebellious Magazine, feminist media at rebelliousmagazine.com. Follow us on social media at Wild and Sublime and sign up for newsletters at wildandsublime.com.